This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a series of conversations about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. Welcome back to More Than Meets the IRB. We do not have many opportunities to talk informally about what is happening in the IRB world, so we hope that every installment of this podcast may create a little conversational space for you every month. For this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Fred Koning at the last Primer Advancing Ethical Research Conference. Fred is a very interesting person to talk to about anything research ethics related. He has an MS in research ethics from Union Graduate College and Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine. After earning his Master of Divinity and Master of Theology degrees, Fred served in parish ministry for 15 years. He has served for more than 10 years as a non-scientist community IRB and REB member and is currently the North American Panel Chair and Research Ethicist at Quorum Review. Back in 2012, Dr. Robert Klitzman published the results of a study in the Academic Medicine Journal titled Institutional Review Board Community Members, Who Are They, What Do They Do, and Whom Do They Represent? This is a great title. It gives the impression that no one really has a firm idea about what a community member is. And if you listen to any conversation about community representation on the IRB, this still seems to be the case. The regulations are clear that IRBs must have a member who is not otherwise affiliated with the institution. But other than that, IRBs sometimes struggle to figure out what this person brings to the table, which is, as we learn from Fred, a great deal. What do we mean when we use the term community in any IRB-related conversation? Should an IRB have a sense of community accountability? We get to all that and more in this podcast, including a bit of his unique story, the way he ended up an IRB member, I begin by asking Fred what he thinks about all the conversation around the revised common rule, which at the time was still awaiting approval. Let's jump right in. I think, you know, this is a question of, uh, have we become wise enough and informed enough to march along ethically with the developments in science and technology? You use the word wisdom. What does wisdom have to do with IRB review? Well, I think understanding human needs and science's response to providing what human beings need to move forward and what communities need to move forward. Who benefits? And who benefits. Like basic question, you know, often in the IRB context, you know, as a protocol becomes before the IRB and people ask themselves questions about the study and very often the presenter will say after the presentation, I find the risk-benefit ratio acceptable. The relationship between risk and benefit uh, is a favorable one. The question is, what makes research acceptable involving human beings? And how is that calculus made? And I think we're learning to be wise about that, to be more explicit in our reasoning for making that kind of a calculation. I think we sometimes have some ways to go, but I think we're doing a better job of it. And that we don't need, we no longer, I think, need 
to have egregious incidents or events which are really disruptive right. in the human community to figure this out. I think we can anticipate some of these problems before they grow beyond our reach. Right, so we, we're becoming wiser in the sense that we're thinking more holistically about what it means to participate in research and what it means to live and thrive as a person in an age dominated by big data and social media and increasingly complex healthcare needs. And IRBs are becoming wiser because they're able to respond better to that complexity. Is that what you're saying? I think so. For example, when it comes to privacy and confidentiality, in terms of the research uh, that was involved in terms of human emotion yes. in the uh, Facebook uh, study, I think there's now a recognition that our technology is, a, is a, of the kind that we can't, even when we want to, guard privacy according to traditional right. notions. Yeah, that's a stunning reality. It's, so how do we live and respect human dignity in an overexposed world? How do we? And I think what's being suggested is another principle, a community accountability principle, that we need to have a wide conversation in our society beyond just the individual, but where communities weigh in on right. what is acceptable in terms of the anticipated benefits and this loss of privacy. Right, so there's a model of research ethics that's very heavily invested in the researcher-participant relationship. When it seems like what you're describing is perhaps a triangle where you have a participant, a researcher, and a community and they're all informing each other in different ways. I think so. Like, I mean, the, there's a long history of the celebration of the individual. Yes in American history and American life. And that has, you know, sort of philosophical underpinnings as well. But that seems, you know, that relationship between the individual and the community, that primary relationship between the investigator and the uh, participant is no longer stand, and stand alone as it as may perhaps it never was. Right. Um, but yeah. now the community needs to be at, the, at that same discussion table in perhaps as an equal partner. Well, speaking of community involvement, how did you become part of the IRB world? Well, I was asked. <laughs> I didn't volunteer. I didn't seek it out. Um, I was asked by uh, a chair of a, a research ethics board in a large city in Canada, and they were looking for someone from the community to serve as a community board member. Right. And given the Canadian requirements, needed somebody with a background in ethics. Okay. And since I was a chaplain at the time and was doing graduate work in, in ethics, it seemed like a good fit. So the Canadian regulations require that your additional representatives have some background in ethics? One member of the board One must, to have, okay. must have recognized, uh, I guess, education, experience, practice in the world of bioethics. That seems wise. <laughs> it, it seemed to the Canadian government. Right. So what happened next? So I wrestled with that for a while because it was a volunteer role and I was told that it would involve a, a minimum commitment of about 10 hours a week. And busy as I was, I wasn't really sure if I had that kind of time budget. But the more I thought about it, the more it sort of pointed to my own story and my own mother's experience 
as an MS patient, uh, having been involved in 13 clinical trials during oh. the course of her disease. Yes. And, you know, I'd always had some questions as to whether or not she was fully respected at the time and whether these studies uh, took into account the burdens uh, that she bore as a participant. And you watched that? And I watched that. And as a family member, I think we, as you know, as her children, we sort of also were along and paid the price in terms of her diminished energy and resources, time away from the home. She lived five hours away from the oh. research site. Right. So all those things were stirring in me at the time and I felt that I could then also be a voice for families and for patients who opted to become participants. Earlier you spoke of human need as a critical point of ethics in the way that we think about research and reviewing research, that there should be some conversation around human need and, and who benefits. It sounds like that might come from your experience watching your mother participate in in research. Right. You know, when I look at my mother's motivation to participate, as much as I can gather from it, I think she was looking for a number of things. She was looking for uh, a new drug, a new agent, which would work better than what her doctor was presently offering her. I think she was also seeking community with fellow MS sufferers. I think she really enjoyed those encounters in the waiting room. Right. With others. So she had her own community of need. Yes. I also think she felt that uh, she needed to, have to give something back to society. Okay. So I think she was meaning making in both those senses. Meaning making. She was trying to make sense of her illness. Yes. And I think that also then led her to make sacrifices and commitments because, you know, she was a volunteer who really had a higher purpose. So and th those were her needs. And I think that sometimes in the IRB, we think that people are there primarily because they want to um, you know, participate in yes. new agents. They want to be followed by uh, you know, an expert in the disease field. Right. And sometimes I think they're looking for um, opportunities to access experimental drugs which otherwise might not be available to them and might, in their peculiar circumstances, be effective. The U.S. regulations were required to have an unaffiliated member on the IRB, and we commonly refer to that person as a community member. And often, we lay on the shoulders of the community member in the IRB the task of representing the perspective of the participant. As an IRB community member, has that been your experience? Is that what seems to be expected of you when you're participating in an IRB review? I think it's not always clear what my role as a community right. member is and was on an IRB. I think for a non-scientific community member, uh, a lot is what you make of it. Okay. How do you bring your experience to the table? And how have you done that? So I think, you know, I very much paid attention to my own uh, story in terms of my relationship with my mother and the things that were important to her. And I think that helps me raise questions okay. when it comes to burden. And I think I begin to ask myself, what would it have been like for someone like my mother 
to participate in a study like that. And you, you think through the narrative of that and... And how she would have perhaps come to a decision like that. And that so then we ask, for example, the relationship between risk and anticipated benefit. There may be subjects who uh, would strain that the way my mother did, there, yes. but there would be others who would have a much narrower interest. Right. And so the burdens for one, what may be acceptable for one, might not be acceptable for another. Right. So right. what is the range of burdens that might spark the interest? Range of make, burdens. And make, and make it acceptable. Well, that's a very provocative way to think about assessing a protocol. Exactly, and that's why I always take into account that there are patients uh, who very much need and want to participate and accept these risks and these burdens, which can be considerable, right? because it helps them make sense of their disease. So to backtrack a bit to talking about the role of the non-scientist, as you described it earlier, a lot of IRBs have difficulty recruiting people to, from the community to participate in the IRB, but then even when we recruit our non-scientists or our unaffiliated members who are very often the same same person, then we have a hard time describing what it is they're supposed to do or why, why they should participate. What would you say is the value of participating in an institutional review board as a non-scientific member or as a community representative? Why is that an important thing for us to do, or is it? Well, I think it's very important because I've learned to ask naive and stupid questions <laughs> within the IRB context. I found that it's very helpful not to be embarrassed as to what you don't know about a protocol. Right. And so often I ask questions for clarification and I ask for explanations as to, uh, you know, sometimes one of the phrases, you know, explain to me the mechanism of action. Right. And you talk, tell me in, you know, in plain terms what is the pressing and burning issue here. And the scientists, the medical doctors are forced to explain. And sometimes I've discovered that in that naive questioning, errors or misunderstandings or assumptions in the protocol right. are uncovered. And sometimes just the naive questions raises the deeper medical questions for those who are presenting. Right, so things that the IRB might quickly pass over, someone thinking of it from your perspective slows it down at that point and forces us to think about things ethically that we probably wouldn't have. So I think the so-called scientific or medical naivete of the community member is very important because this is what public accountability is all about. Right. You should be able to uh, share with Joe Public Yes. What it is that you want to do it and why you want to do it and why it's important to do it. I've never heard it described that way. So we should be we should be going out and telling people we need your naivete on our institutional review board. Your common experience. Right. And your common questions. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.